This is Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and publishing. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today, I'm talking to Jane Friedman, a well-known publishing guru. I consider really uh, to be one of the most intelligent and, I will use this word, perspicacious people <laughs> that I run across in the publishing business. And we have a lot of really smart people in our industry. So um, I think most people who are listening to this may know of Jane from Hot Sheet, which is this terrific newsletter that she operates and which I subscribe to and recommend uh, whenever I am talking to people who want to know more about publishing and the current state of affairs, one of the two or three important things to subscribe to. So thanks for being on the show. How are you? Thank you, David. I'm doing very well. So as usual, the publishing business is crazy. Um, and everyone I talk to has is worried about something at any given point there's no i think i i don't think there has been a single time that i have been in the publishing business and it's now a lot of years where the conversation has not revolved around either impending disaster um doom fear anxiety anger um frustration and um the sense that no one is in control of anything. Does that kind of describe it to you? That is very accurate, yes. <laughs> and I was thinking about this, you know, I go through my papers periodically trying to figure out what can I throw away. I'm really bad at throwing things away, but I found a, um, a program for an event I went to in 1979, um, which covered some of the same topics that people are talking about today. Mm -hmm. The then it was about the conglomerization of the publishing business, as if the large publishers were the problem, um, you know, and sucking up all of the mm -hmm. business. Because then, in 1979, there were a lot of bookstores. Now, today, it's gone completely differently. Now, it's, no one cares. Well, there is some concern about the large size of publishers. But really, what matters is the conglomerization of retail. And the creation of essentially a funnel, a giant funnel that is aimed only at one place. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, but, you know, for publishers, the kinds of people that you talk to, for authors, um, it's just the landscape that we are working in, you know, whatever it is, um, not never conducive to the needs of smaller publishers and independent authors. Just never is, never has been. So I think you spend a lot of time decoding the current environment for publishers and authors. And I'm just kind of curious what you think of today. Like if you, in that context of doom and gloom that I alluded to earlier, um, what are the things that are most important to most of the people that you're talking to and what are you, what do you think that they have wrong that what do you think is really the most important thing thing or things elements or atmospheres or whatever that might really be more important for people to focus on so if you could contrast those two things it would be really interesting well a couple years ago there was worry about this 
the merging of publishers anew when Penguin Random House wanted to acquire Simon & Schuster, which the Department of Justice stopped that. And at that moment, this would have been, what, uh, 2021, I think, when that deal was first announced. There was so much pearl clutching about how this was going to be the end of opportunity uh, for authors and agents, that it was going to drive down advances. Um, It was going to create this kind of bully publisher who would have way too much power. And I never bought into any of that uh, fear, anger, anxiety. I just, I feel like... I think it's appropriate that you brought up this 1979 (laughs) paper that is concerned about the same thing. Um, And I'm not saying that, oh, yes, this is um, this is a good thing or it's something to ignore that. But that the ship sailed long ago. Like if 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 this were something that were going to kill literary talent, if it was going to stop new authors from coming to the market, uh, if it was going to dampen artistry, I think it would have happened by now. Um, and, you know, here I'm thinking of both agents and maybe the Authors Guild as, you know, they keep saying, well, people will will not write books if they're not compensated appropriately. And I'm like, I think people are still going to be writing books because <laughs> they 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 have never been compensated appropriately. So it's most people are not, in fact, money motivated to write and publish a book. The money is not there for most people. Let's be clear. So that's on one side. And I think we're going to continue to see agents and authors in particular anxious about how big publishers are. What I see is a flourishing small press independent publisher market, which has in part happened because it's easier to distribute books, or it's not as important to get physical placement of books in Barnes and Noble, in independent bookstores, retailers generally. And so if you have a great book and you can tackle the discoverability issue, it's not a bad environment to be working in, at least from my perspective. So I think the the discoverability issue is really key. This is where I think everyone is confused. The tools keep changing. Um, Social media is one of those tools, and it keeps evolving and changing the algorithms, et cetera. And so that's that's where I have the most focus, is what are the new buttons or levers we need to be pushing or pulling in order order to make people aware that this book exists? The other issue that's creating a lot of anger and fear is artificial intelligence. And there is some connection here with what I just discussed, because a lot of the people who are in control of this technology are part of these really big companies with a lot of power. And so I think that there's concern this power will be used for ill, um, that authors, artists, creative people will get trampled. Um, And so, of course, there are now lawsuits underway to help avoid the trampling. Um, I'm not saying they're right or they're wrong, but we're going to see years of activity where people are trying to push back um, the big conglomerates because of fear for what it could do to creative people. Right, which is, I think, a legitimate impulse. And maybe not so much the fear part, but the anxiety about Mm -hmm. uh, overall state of our world, the amount of power that a small number of corporate 
corporations and indiv- some individuals have over the entire culture, um, not just the creative culture, but the consumption culture and of how people formulate ideas and information and concepts of how the world works. I think that's, you know, a legitimate concern. And I think a lot of, there probably isn't enough contrariness about that. You know, there's a lot, as you, the pearl clutching part, I think is what you notice the most, but that's not constructive. And I think that actually drives away the thoughtful approach that you would need to have to constructing alternatives, let's say, you know, and to making people aware of just how much power they actually do have. I thought, I'm not sure I will say this right, but I read something the other day that just really affected me. It was like something along the lines of, well, what can I do about it? I'm just one person out of 7 billion. And you think, yeah. And if every single person feels that way, powerless, that's how we stay. But if you turn that around and say, I'm one of 7 billion people, we have a lot to say about what happens. Power in numbers. And, you know, I think we underestimate how much authority uh, our behavior has. Um, but, and th- that applies to writers. I think it applies to culture um, as well. But within the, the, you know, we operate in a sort of smaller component of, of that um, larger sphere, you know, privacy, control, individualism, um, the ability to reach an audience um, and or, or not, you know. And I remember, you know, when people looked at Facebook as this great thing because it would allow you to converse with lots of people or Twitter the same way. But then the platforms evolve and the entry points that were existed don't exist anymore. You know, this has happened with every technological advance. It had all these potentials that people latched onto. And just like the um, the way that artists uh, colonize uh, areas which are inexpensive and make them interesting, and then money follows mm-hmm. and artists can't afford to live there anymore. The same thing happens with um, social media and online communities that, you know, what makes them interesting and attractive and fun also attracts money because marketing will follow culture. And as soon as it becomes commercialized space, it's no longer interesting. And so we're always, people are always trying to escape commercialization and find someplace new where they can be authentic people, authentically themselves. So I think right now, one of the things that you alluded to is certainly affecting um, writers and publishers, and that is the evolution of social media and of Amazon and all of the places where they got people got used to doing things a certain way, you know, kind of figuring out how it worked. Well, those platforms change so that you can't figure out how they work and they can stay ahead of the game and have power. Um, so I think that makes it, you could be frustrated, but it also makes it, I mean, if you wanted to, you could look at it as it's kind of fun because it's a game. And to, now to go back to one of the other things you said, which, you know, it's really interesting to think about writing, whether it's a commercial activity or an artistic expression of self or both. Uh, and there's a very, you know, there's a spectrum. There are people who really want to make a living in their, from their writing and from their work. Um, there are people who feel that the art is first 
and foremost, and the need to create uh, is irrelevant to whether you get fully paid for it or not. And then there's every spectrum in between or every place on the spectrum in between. But I think a lot of, um, but the one place where I think it is, it does bear a sort of political and economical analysis is the notion of time and who can afford time. Because if you are spending 20 hours a day earning a living, you will not have time to write. And so there is a kind of privilege for writers who have time. Um, or, and then, you know, sometimes people will get all, get on a, on a high horse and say, well, I found time to write. Why couldn't somebody else, you know, if you really need to, but I, I don't think any of us can judge anybody else. I think it's fair to say that, uh, this, the economic system is not built to make space for writers. <laughs> it just isn't writers have to make space for themselves somewhere and figure it out. And that's true for independent publishing too. Yeah. You know, a lot of it is, is done from a, a, a priority that it has not to do with making, making it a business. It has to do with, uh, making public something you really believe in. Um, so, but you work with, and you work with all different kinds of writers and publishers, right? So do you feel that there's a, you know, that kind of, if I, if you think about that spectrum, which predominates, you know, in your work, is there, or does anything, or, or does that, is it just various? It varies so much, but I will say that the emergence of the self-publishing market, which really coincides with Amazon and Kindle and, uh, and eBooks, I think if you look at that group of people, they're very market-minded they're producing books at a pretty good clip if they're professionals at it. And it's not that they don't care about the craft or they don't see themselves as artists, but they have their eye on the ball in terms of what is going to drive earnings and how to make it easier to earn a living from their writing. They're willing to make compromises, I think, that sometimes I don't see other writers willing to make. Those compromises might be, I'm going to write in a very specific genre that is selling. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to use the tropes that are popular. Um, I'm going to use certain techniques on Amazon in order to ensure my book is visible, like using Kindle Unlimited. Whereas, you know, if I look at the literary fiction side, there are people who are very anti-Amazon and they're not willing to make a compromise like that to have their work exclusively available on Amazon. But, you know, self-publishing authors will often make business decisions that are are really about how do I make this sustainable from a financial perspective. On the other extreme, and this is the community I originated from in the creative writing university community, you know, a lot of the money is not even spoken of. Everything is a little bit behind the curtain. Um, people don't typically share advanced sizes, sales numbers, agents typically tell you not to share these things. And the more literary you are, the more I feel like there's this mindset that marketing and promotion and being concerned about the money lessens the artistry or it can pollute it, you know, the whole selling out 
mythology. So I, I find myself sometimes frustrated with both sides. <laughs> um, and of course, both sides have their own stereotypes too, um, which, are, which can be unfair. So I think what's really tough in my line of work is dealing with the newcomer coming into all of this, especially someone who they might not understand the pros and cons of these paths and trying to have a really frank conversation with them about what they want to get out of this. Right. Is it money? Is it something else? And I always try to reduce people's expectations because the bigger picture here is that books, at least from my perspective, are one of the worst ways to earn money as a writer. Like there are a lot of things I would choose to do first. Um, and so trying to tell, trying to sometimes really talk people out of, it, is a book really the right thing as your next step if you're totally new to this? Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I think about that a lot. Also talking to a lot of people who don't know the publishing business, sometimes who have kind of mistaken it for something that it isn't or um, learned about it, you know, maybe as it was once. Um, mm -hmm. And, but also you have to find out what, as you said, people's, what do they want? You know, what is your expectation? What is your goal? Um, for writers in particular, I think that kind of self-interrogation is really important but to do it in the context of you know maybe to work with somebody like you because then they would understand then they can understand what the questions to ask are yeah. so it's not just kind of a, a vague well what do i really want i mean it is really something that requires um some rigor and um willingness to really question yourself um on things that matter what matters to you the most? You know, as you said, you know, I I completely believe that there are some forms of writing that are anti-commercial or uncommercial or outside of the sphere of commerciality, and you have you have to write them. You know, if that's what happens, you have to do it. You follow where your muse, if if, if you want to call it that, takes you, um, and then that's it. You know, it doesn't really matter if you talk to people who. Um, have had intense experiences of revelation in that way, they understand that they're just going to have to accept the consequences. Um, and it is almost mystical um, in a way. But on the other side, the, you know, then you look at the other extreme, which is more mundane. And, and mundane, I mean that in a positive way, that it, it's, um, you you know the utility of the writing is important and maybe it is to make a living and in, therefore you follow a you have to understand what it's going to take for you to do that just like you would be um trying to figure out how am i going to build a career as a musician how do i build a career as a therapist you know you go to school you get a degree and as part of that training they help you learn how to become a professional and we don't have that so much in because the 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 MFA program world that you you know you mentioned is really oriented toward fine art writing and it there there is a, it's a different thing to to learn writing as a kind of formal career like we don't have a lot of that there's no like Berkeley School of Music teaches people the business of music as well as the art um I don't know. Maybe there is a. I mean, there are maybe there are communications departments or something that have, um, you know, that include writing as a skill. Um, 
but it's it's different. It's hard for people to figure that out. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because when I speak to large audiences of writers, especially if it's including people who haven't really published yet, or maybe they're just entering a degree program. I, I like to, I like contrasting the writer path or more generally an artistic path with, with the more career-oriented paths that have very specific steps associated with them. So like for instance, when I when I consult with doctors or lawyers or uh, people who used to be uh, you know investment bankers, people like they have a reasonable expectation that if I do XYZ, I am going to get this prize at the end. Um, it is not that way with an MFA program or with most artistic careers. It's, you know, it's very much driven by, are you going to be in that magical combination combination of luck, timing and hard work uh, that like that 20% of the, of the curve that, that break out and are able to do this for a living. Um, so the artistic path really beats you up because you don't know how close you are to breaking through and, and gaining the momentum that would lead to a full-time living or something that's sustainable where you can, in fact, mostly just write what you want. Right. And yeah, no, I think, I think that is, it makes it kind of scary. Um, and I, again, I liken it a lot to musicians. Uh, you know, yeah. I read a lot of, I read a lot about the music business. I've always thought that music, the music business and, and the book business have really a lot of similarities. Many things are different, but there's a certain dynamic, you know, that it's, there's a creative person and then there are the production people and the distribution people and the sales people. We have that, the commercialization of an artistic form. And often the people who are uh, in the music business got in because they love music. And then it, they made it a business or the, in writing uh, or in publishing, you, most of the people who became publishers didn't do it because they thought it was a, you know, a, a lucrative career. They yeah. did it because they liked books and, but it's a way of making a living in being around books. And so many, of course, editors and publishers also are secretly writers um, because that's what they care about. And if you go to the home of a music uh, uh executive she or he probably has a music uh, an instrument at home you know they there's a lot of uh crossover now mm -hmm. uh, but the people who are the creative side often for whatever reason um don't have a clear as clear an understanding of the business part of the business as the business people do who do understand a, you know how things are challenging and um, and also the other thing is that there are so many artists so many authors so many musicians and there is just not enough consumption that is willing to pay for a, a lord the a, a larger percentage to be remunerated and so i don't know what the number is you know i always i remembered years ago that I think this was when the Authors Guild was keeping track roughly, you know, 40 years ago, that they said 5% of working writers made a living from writing. And probably true for actors, the same kind of thing. Um, it, you know, maybe it's a little bit better now. I think self-publishing as a career didn't exist 40 years ago on, a, on the scale that it does now. No. And I guess, you know, we do have to give credit to Amazon for 
enabling that to some extent. Their platform, to a lesser extent, maybe IngramSpark, but mostly Amazon has really fostered that for their own business reasons, not out of any altruism in support of writers, but it does have, it has made an environment that just didn't exist before. And when I talk to self-publishing authors, and I'm sure you do more than I do, um, who work on Amazon, um, frustrated as they may be at times, um, it can be lucrative. You know, yes. You know, you can make a good living. Not everybody can, but the ones who are most successful, and I think you're right, it does require being very carefully attentive to what the audience of readers is asking for. And in the book business, we have a long tradition of being product-centric. It's all about the book. And then everything follows from the book. You know, who is the audience? Well, we look at the book first. But many writers are going, who is the audience? How can I shape my book to meet the needs of that audience? The, the, I think that works mostly in what we call genre, mm -hmm. um, romance, yes. mystery. Um, you, people who are consuming a lot of books have very clear expectations. Yes. And if you you can work within the parameters that they establish for you um, and you're good, you have to be a good writer too. You can't just write gobbledygook that but you, you know if you can write and follow the rules of that genre, you'll you can find an audience and that that's being customer centric instead of product centric. And publishers, traditional publishers, just that's somewhat antithetic. I mean, it's not, you know, you know, cause of course many publishers will uh, pay attention to what the, the customers want, but they're not going out there and commissioning people um, to write for a particular uh, formula um, the way self-publishers are essentially commissioning themselves. Yes. So it, I think it's, I think it's really, um, but still, you you know what you're what you're talking about is there's no magic bullet. It still requires work. Yes, and um, something you said there is very interesting. That you know publishers focus on this one product, the the book, and I think writers are in a unique position of looking at all of the different things they could offer someone that goes beyond the book. Um, or that packages that book material into a different experience. And I'm always often trying to encourage writers to think beyond the book because, yes, yeah. publishers are great at that and self-publishing authors, too, are great at selling the book at whatever price point and whatever format to get the sale. But there's so much more that people would potentially pay for if they're a big fan. Right. And there's lots of things that you can offer for people who are never going to pay you a dime that's still useful to you because they might help spread the word about what you do. Uh, so just thinking about demand curves, um, you know, to be, to put this in tangible terms, like Wattpad serializations have been a great way for authors to build an audience, regardless of how they ultimately publish. And then if you look at someone like Brandon Sanderson on the grand scale of things where he had that $45 million Kickstarter, you know, he was doing these really premium deluxe offerings 
that people weren't even going to be able to get anywhere else unless they funded him. Um, and then he got to make the same money again from his traditional publisher <laughs> who would do the standard editions. He can so. be his, what he did is I think inspiring, but not replicable. Um, yeah. It should inspire authors and publishers to think, as you just suggested, I think it's really important to not just think about the book and to think about a community of readers and um, care about them, but also ask them to care about you in a concrete way that, you know, we see this in the, in the comic world where people dress up as the characters that they love. That's a form of community. And it is commercialized because somebody is selling them those costumes. Someone will sell them the, the plushes, the toys, the T-shirts, um, all that stuff. It's not book, but it's part of the community around the book. And you know, we don't see too many authors selling T-shirts <laughs> or publishers selling T-shirts. And, and maybe that's not the right thing. But I do think you're, you, you're right that there's an underestimation of what the potential is. And it's not icky commercialization to do that. It's building community. And because if you just tried to trash your community by selling them any old thing, you will not succeed. You have to, it's, it, it follows what we've been talking about. You have to be attentive to what people are interested in. So they won't just buy any old thing with your brand on it. Um, and I, I have a lot of respect for the musicians who, you know, go out and perform, work hard and sell you merchandise. And then after the show, they're standing at the merch table, signing, uh, you know, being they're they're building community. They're making, you know, I've talked to musicians that later went on, you know, they're superstars, but I got, I can say, I met, I met them, you know, over their t-shirt, uh, you know, 10 years earlier when they weren't superstars and they had to be in that mode of direct communication with the people who are hearing their music. I, and I think that that's important. So, you know, it, and maybe they weren't not, they were, you know, 50 people show up. It's like, you know, when writers complained that only 10 people came to the book event, you know, you could look at it as those 10 people really cared. You should really care about them. Don't complain. They matter. And if you take care of them, they go home and they tell 10 other people, you know, now you've reached a hundred people. So anyway, I get a, a little mm -hmm. excited about that stuff. Well, one of my favorite stories to tell writers is about an author I consulted with on her marketing for a, for a book she published on the decision to have children. And when when it came out, you know, she started looking for places to spread the word and stumbled on a Reddit community, a subreddit called Fence Sitter, about people trying to decide whether or not to have children. And she's like, these are my people. This is the audience for my book. And, you know, she was very thoughtful. She didn't go in there and start promoting her book. She just answered people's questions. And pretty soon it was evident to everyone there, this lady knows what she's talking about. She has credentials. Oh, and she happens to have a book, and I'm going to buy it. Exactly. But the the real 
wonderful part about this is she realized as she participated in this community that she needed to revise the book because she had missed addressing some questions that just had not occurred to her because she's no longer at the age right. where she would have children herself. And, and you know, one of the things she realized she hadn't addressed was climate change. She's like, I got to put that in the next book or I need to write a new one. Right. Well, so I think maybe she, and maybe because times change too. Like yeah. if you wrote a book about that issue 20 years ago, it would be different today. Similarly, I know someone who writes, her work is in helping parents whose children won't go to sleep. She maintains an online community and, you know, every year it's different people. So it, over 20 years, she's noticed mm. the different questions that people asked in 2000 from what they're asking in 2023 the concerns some a theme it may be similar there could be similar issues but things do change yeah. and you're now talking to people in 2023 who were not even born when she started doing this work mm -hmm. i love you know i think that's really cool but you it is true you you know culture changes really fast now so books are are challenged by that because the information, the milieu, the ideas that generated a book might no longer, and it still could be a great book, but the audience is different. And we probably need to pay more attention to that in publishing. And maybe it's, there's a whole new business there going back and looking at practical self-help books from five years ago and say, finding the ways that you could revise them and going back to the publisher and saying, this is a book that would really work today, but you have to change it. Uh, that would be really cool. Drive publishers crazy, but why not? Well, you've just described the situation I'm in because my book for writers on the business came out five years ago and I've been revising it and I'm trying so hard to revise it in a way that doesn't make it a requiring of another revision in five years, but I'm not I sure think, it can no, be done. No, I don't think you can't. No, I think it'll be, I mean, what we didn't talk about today and we'll talk about another time, AI, will that will redefine everything by the time you do your next book yeah. so maybe you just have to hold on write it out and do another version of it five years from now just keep working on it every day <laughs> <laughs> well jane our, this was really fun yeah we could do a lot of a lot of this and just keep on going but i think you i know you, <laughs> you have a life so i want to thank you for doing this um, my pleasure this has been Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and the publishing industry. I'm David Wilk. I've been talking to Jane Friedman uh, from Hot Sheet about all kinds of things I hope you're interested in. Thank you.